The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content relating to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, Murder Shelf Bookies. I'm Tara, along with my co-host, Jill. Hi there. For those of you just tuning in, we've been part of a true crime book club for years now and love discussing our books with each other and anyone else who might want to listen about murder. (laughs) Let's be honest, who doesn't want to talk about true crime and learn something in the process? We decided to turn our love of reading and fascination of true crime into a podcast so that we can share with all of you. Each month, we review and discuss a book that we've pulled off our murder shelf. To feel your cheeks so rosy, like to make you comfy, cozy. So, what are we pulling off our murder shelf today? The trial of Lizzie Borden was one of the most sensational of the times in all the world's history. Taking place in the later part of the 19th century, 1893 to be exact, it was dubbed the trial of the century. That commentary means after 92 years of legal jurisprudence, this took the trophy. Yeah. After all of those trials that they probably had at that time. They had a number. We love this book as not only does it dive deep into the trial of Lizzie Borden, featuring testimony from the inquest and trial, but it is also a fascinating social commentary of the times. Kara manages to bring legal documents and historical text to life. Coming in at 289 pages, some parts are a little heavy on the detail, but Kara keeps you moving along with twists and turns that'll make you feel like you're in a television courtroom drama. As you might know, our book club meets fairly regularly, roughly every month and a half or so. Jill, as the leader of our book club, made this one special. She not only welcomed us into our home, luring us in with bottomless mimosas and homemade quiche, <laughs> very book club I know, but Jill was able to set up an interview with Kara. We'll be putting in some audio clips of our discussion as they relate to our conversation. As true crime enthusiasts, I think we got so hung up on the whodunit and the evidence that we almost forgot to discuss the trial. Now, a little bit about Kara. This is Kara's first book. For those of you not reading along or skipped over the acknowledgement section, don't do that. Don't do it. Yeah. Kara has been researching and working on the trial of Lizzie Borden for almost 20 years. All right, however, she's no stranger to writing in general. She's penned articles that have been featured in the Boston Globe, the Raleigh News and Observer, the Yale Journal of Law and Humanities, Kara has a PhD from Oxford University and a JD from Stanford Law School. So many degrees. (laughs) Really? Uh, She's previously clerked for the Supreme Court of the United States and served as a legal advisor for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia at The Hague. Now, I have the greatest respect for Kara regarding her work in dealing with the consequences of ethnic cleansing and genocide. It is not easy on the stamina, it is legally difficult, and it just erodes your soul. I did a lot of work in ethnic reconciliation in the Balkans in the 2000s, so I can completely relate to what she was dealing with. However, that's another story, and maybe it's one we'll get to in another episode. Her scholarship has been supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Humanities Centers, of which she is a trustee. All right, this is one amazing, accomplished Mm -hmm. woman. All right, so what are we eating today at our book club? I have a really tasty recipe for a pear tart, or a pear pie, if you prefer. It's a little different from the usual apple pie, and it's really one of my favorites, and it's simple for you overtasked murder bookies. It looks really fancy, so you'll be very happy at the reception when you reveal it. I've made it for book club, for Easter, for bridal, baby showers, really any occasion. 
and it's all part of Lizzie Borden. Her alibi focused around pears. All right, you can find the recipe on our blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com, and I hope you enjoy it. What are we drinking, Tara? I'm ready. Bring well, it on. We have a perfect sparkling wine to go with a super yummy pear tart that you made. <laughs> and really, this tart is super delicious. But the wine that I have is an Asti from Elmo Pio Wines. Mm. And it's super low alcohol, clocking in at around 7%. So feel free to drink up at your book club. This is a sparkling white hailing from the Piedmont region of Italy and is comprised of 100% Moscato grapes. Don't let that word Moscato fool you. I know it's often associated with sweetness, but the Italians know what they're doing with this grape. And when tasted on its own, it tastes of peaches and red berries with a honeyed mm. sweetness. But when paired with this tart, the sweetness melds with the fruit and spice, giving you a nice zippy mouthfeel. 7%? Mm-hmm. 7%? Yeah. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> and it's light, too. And the bubbles really for, I think, like a sparkling wine or champagne, the bubbles yeah. just kind of cut through that. I like that. I like that a lot. So we're going to open our story on August 3rd, 1892, a pretty hot summer day. And throughout the book, you'll notice just how hot it actually gets up in Massachusetts. Yeah. So Eli Benz is working the counter at D.R. Smith's drugstore on South Main Street in Fall River, Massachusetts. A woman comes in and asks for 10 cents worth of prussic acid to clean a sealskin cape. The woman's request is refused as prussic acid is also considered a poison and only sold upon doctor's orders. The woman insists that she has made this purchase before. Benz again refuses, and the woman leaves. I would imagine a little bit in a huff, because he remembers this. Yes. Uh, no one suspected that this interaction would come to the forefront of a murder trial that would demonstrate premeditation and murderous intent. Dun-dun. <laughs> this is the story, not only of the trial of the 19th century, but also of the life and times of Lizzie Borden. Really? Because don't you have prussic acid on your shopping Always. list? Always, yes. Yeah, it's top yeah. of my list. Prussic yeah, acid. should watch out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, so five people live at the Borden household on 2nd Street, which is considered to be near the center of a very busy district. The elder Bordens are Andrew, who's 69, and Abby, who's 64, the Borden sisters, Emma and Lizzie, and their servant, Bridget Sullivan, who's 26 at the time. Now, the girls call her Maggie after the former maid. They just never really learned her name was they Bridget. They didn't bother it, to learn her name. Yeah. Says something about how the Irish immigrants were treated at the time, mm -hmm. and we'll be getting into that. They have a visiting brother-in-law, John V. Morse, who is 69. He's from Andrew's first marriage and kind of an extended stay guest. The house has been converted from a two-family house into a one-family house with two staircases, one in the front, one in the back. But the layout is going to be really important. The house has no central hallway, which means you generally are going to walk through rooms to get into other rooms, especially the upstairs bedroom. When they did the renovation, nothing that would be considered luxurious is added. They had running water in the barn and in the kitchen, and then in the basement. It was there for laundry and as a functional toilet. Other than that, there were no additional running water in the house, and chamber pots were still in use from the habits they were mm -hmm. doing for years, uh, and they had those in the main bedrooms. They did have gas lighting, which was not completely unusual for the era. Electricity was available in Fall River, but it was almost exclusively used as evening lighting. Most power companies didn't even turn their generators on until after dusk, and electric appliances are only going to be making their appearance around 1910, so this isn't even a consideration for the Bordens of 1892. Mm -hmm. Fun fact. Fun fact. Yes. The first electric refrigerator was sold in 1913, and it cost $900. 
$900 in 1913 is $23,361.27 today. I'd be going into debt for a refrigerator. You could buy a little house for that. You can get a car with that. Yeah. A a real nice car. Whoa. Okay. Ice boxes were far more common. And these were literally wooden boxes where they take enormous slabs of ice, stick them in, the cold would drop down and keep your, your food cold. So, however, the Borden house did have a coal-fueled steam heating system, and many of the houses at that time commonly had the old coal stoves. In addition, the house was described in parallel lines. Which is a massively huge book. I want to take a picture of it. I don't even think it could fit into a picture because it's so thick. You can work out lifting this book as your weight. The house was described in Parallel Lives as being extremely pretty and refined in its appointments, easy chairs, shaded lamps, books, well-chosen bric-a-brac, cushions, draperies, open piano, a hundred comforts and pleasing trifles tastily disposed. Pleasing trifles tastily disposed. You're going to find some of the language is just... Incredible. (laughs) Perfect. But it bespoke the pleasant character of the occupants. So Andrew is not quite the cheapskate that he is portrayed to be. They lived comfortably, if middle-classy. Andrew was first wed to Sarah Morse Borden. He had three children, all girls, Emma Lenore, the oldest, followed by Alice Esther. She died when she was two years old. And Lisbeth Andrew, called Lizzie the youngest, and named for her father. Now, Sarah died in 1863 of, quote, uterine congestion and spinal disease when Lizzie was about two years old. Three years thereafter, Andrew married Abby Gray. Abby was a 37-year-old spinster who was likely thrilled by the proposal. (laughs) Better late than never. I get so angry with the use of spinster. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that word, 19th century term, should never have made it into the 20th century. Definitely not into the 21st. Mm -mm. Kara explains that Andrew needs a housekeeper and a mother for his two girls. And since the Greys were constantly skirting financial difficulties, Abby's father had just remarried and had a new child. The gray home had become very crowded, so now Abby has a chance at her own home with a husband and even maybe children of her own. But it didn't turn out to be the smashing success Abby hoped it would be. Emma was a teenager at the time of her father's remarriage and not seeking a new mother. As many teenage girls might, Emma appears to have resented Abby for taking her mother's place and also trying to take her place with Lizzie as well, since I'm sure Lizzie looked up to Emma in that way. Mm Mm-hmm. She called Abby by her Christian name, so just Abby. And now Lizzie was near five years old and much more eager to have a mother for the first time in her memory, calling Abby mother. Listen, I have to interject. I felt the same way when my dad remarried after my mother died when I was two years old. Mm -hmm. So I can relate to Lizzie wanting a new mother. I know exactly how that feels, and you're apprehensive, but you're excited and hopeful. Nevertheless, it was on Emma that Lizzie continued to rely, as she had since her mother's death. And she just did what she'd always known. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Absolutely. So in 1892, the Borden daughters, Emma and Lizzie, from Andrew's first marriage, are now 42 and 32 and are unlikely to marry. Listen, I'm 32. (laughs) (laughs) Granted, I don't know if I'm likely to marry. I mean, uh, my boyfriend and I have been together for seven years. We have a house together. We have a dog. We have a cat. But marriage is not in our future. It it just makes me laugh every time I read this. Oh, yes. So, yes, it's puzzling. Was this because they felt their father hadn't aimed high enough in the upper social echelons of Fall River? Was he too frugal for dowries? We know this is a running thing, especially when we keep talking about their motivation. Yeah, and how unlikely they are to marry. 
And if Lizzie was looking for more to life, why didn't she just look to marry? Were there suitors that were never mentioned? Had their gentleman callers been turned away? There's so many questions. And when Jill was actually at Fall River Historical Society, she asked curator Michael Martins this question. But unfortunately, the historical record is actually blank on this point. We just don't know. However, I have to say I do have a theory. It is pure speculation, but I do try to root my theories and facts based in the era. Mm -hmm. And there are many, many murder theories that you're going to hear, but that's going to be in our second cast. We're going to make you wait for those. You're going to have to wait. (laughs) (laughs) So life at 92 Second Avenue was not going to be all that Abby was hoping it would be. She was considered a poor replacement for the real mother by Emma. Carrie utilizes direct quotes from friends, neighbors, and the community to convey Emma and Lizzie's dislike. Emma considered her to be a usurper. Abby's own stepmother recalled, I told Mrs. Borden I would not change places with her for all that money. It's rough. Okay, that's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. If Abby had her own child, maybe it would have been different, but that didn't happen. All right, to give you an idea of Abby's status in the family, she received the same allowance that both Emma and Lizzie were given. Now, this is Andrew's wife who ran his home for him. Her allowance even had to go towards household expenses, and it's equal to that of his daughter's. Now, I'm guessing this was to keep the peace, Andrew keeping all the women on equal footing, no one ahead or behind the others. Mm -hmm. He's doing this delicate balancing act to keep harmony for daily tolerance. But I'm also sure that giving Abby no authority eroded the relationships of the four adults further. Oh, absolutely. So about a year before the murders take place in June of 1891, there is actually a strange incident that occurs. It's a really weird crime that occurs at the Borden home. In Abby's jewelry drawer, some trinkets were found to be missing. From Andrew's desktop, cash and gold were taken. And the theft occurred in the middle of the day while all the women were home. This included Bridget, Emma, and Lizzie. And while all were home, none heard a peep. And Lizzie proudly led the police on a tour of the house, showing where the intruder must have gotten in, so the cellar door. Mm. While it wouldn't be a happy circumstance, again, a year later, Lizzie would coincidentally be giving roughly the same tour to the police after her father and stepmother are murdered. So there's a lot of similarities with this incident as we come up to a year when we get to the inquest and the Makes trial. Makes you wonder if someone was doing a test run? I, yeah. I don't know. There guess, is speculation. <laughs> guess we'll get to it. Karen mentions that Andrew noticed the thief could only have entered through Lizzie's bedroom. And he says, I am afraid the police will not be able to find the real thief. Did he think it was Lizzie trying to cause a disturbance? Maybe embarrass her father? Shame the family somehow? Had someone snuck in, hidden, snuck out again? It's just weird. I don't know. Andrew henceforth locked his bedroom every day and then left the key in plain sight in the sitting room. Now, if things were stolen in Andrew and Abby's bedroom, how would the only entry be through Lizzie's room, based on what Andrew was thinking, even though Lizzie pointed out the cellar door? Right. Karen gives us a tour of the Borden home. However, here's what you need to know. The house has no central halls. The upstairs bedrooms opened to each other. The elder Borden's room had a connecting door to Lizzie's room, which was kept securely locked at all times. And I think she even had a dresser in front of it. Lizzie did, yes. Was that the only connecting door? Yes. Okay, that was the only connecting door. And then Emma's room was only accessible by Lizzie's room. Yeah. So this is a quote from the book. This was the most elaborately secure domicile in town. The front door was triple locked and family members elaborately locked and unlocked their bedrooms and bureaus throughout the day. 
Can you smell the trust in that oh, home? Oh, man. I can feel the divisions in the zone of occupation, certainly. And since the door between Lizzie's room and Andrew and Abby's bedroom was locked, Andrew and Abby entered the bedroom via the back stairs only. They didn't use the front staircase. And now for Emma to get into her bedroom, she had to enter Lizzie's bedroom, climbing upstairs from the front of the house only. And their uncle, John Morse, also used the front staircase, which took him to the small landing where he could enter the guest bedroom to the left. So you go up the stairs, his bedroom is on the left, Lizzie's is straight Straight across across, from the staircase. And Bridget also used the back staircase like Andrew and Abby to get to her bedroom, but her bedroom was on the third floor. And the cellar was also accessed via the back stairs with an external exit into the backyard. Kara has diagrams sprinkled throughout the book, so you should totally get this book if you really haven't read it. It's a great read, and we'll explain a lot through pictures, and we'll also try to get something up on our blog. You also sometimes just have to actually be there to get the full effect. Yeah, absolutely. Kara does explain this, but it is a running theme and motive throughout the book and the trial and Lizzie's life. When you go to the house today, it's a bed and breakfast, and you can take a tour I highly recommend you doing it. When you go through the rooms, you realize how intimate it is, but it's also this division because the shared rooms spill into each other. The parlor spills into the sitting room, spills into the kitchen, and they're all connected through doors into each other. But it's really the front of the house divided from the back of the house just like the girls are divided from their parents. Okay. It really is how they live their lives. The parents access the back, the girls access the front, and never the two shall meet, except going downstairs to get rid of their slop pants. All right, there you go. Yeah. Now, in addition to their house, there was another problem with a house that popped up. Abby's half-sister was in a situation where she needed to buy half the house she was living in, or she would no longer be able to live in it. So Abby asked her husband if he would front up this money so that her half-sister could remain in her home. Well, guess what? He said he would because he's helping out his wife's family. It's something nice to do. It was something nice to do. I thought it was a very kind act on Andrew's part to help his sister-in-law remain in her home. Mm -hmm. However, the Borden daughters get their nose out of joint. Really. (laughs) Very out of joint. Lizzie and Emma are very concerned with keeping up with the Joneses, and they felt the same gift should be bestowed upon them, Andrew's flesh and blood. Well, to placate these very animated and upset daughters, Andrew decides to transfer their grandfather's property to them. Only this turns out to be unsuccessful. After he does this, they remain highly offended that this causes a permanent breach between them and Abby Borden. Bridget winds up serving two separate meals, with the girls having one meal together, and Andrew and Abby having a second meal together. Lizzie starts to refer to her as Mrs. Borden rather than mother, and openly spoke of her enmity to people about the town. They never get over it. They never mend their fractured relationship. I'm not sure I understand why Emma and Lizzie are so agitated over this. Dad's in-laws are having trouble. He's got the money to help them out. He helps. They object. He matches funds and provides for them. And they still remain in a snit. What the hell? I mean, get over yourselves. The world doesn't revolve around you two alone. It's better to put Abby's sister out on the streets. I mean, have they no compassion for her situation? I just don't get it. I guess I kind of have to side with Abby on this one. I'm not necessarily siding with Lizzie and Emma on this one, as I really do feel badly for how Abby was treated, because I think 
it's, it's been on the BS side, and I still get upset when they can't even call Bridget by her actual name. <laughs> um, but it really does come down to the fact that Abby was the usurper, even though she wasn't trying to do anything that you would think a typical usurper would do. It wasn't like yeah. she was trying to exert power or anything or like be rude to the girls. Why should she be entitled to anything is basically what they thought. And she's not the natural mother. She's not the first wife. And, you know, as uh, I was a child growing up with two step siblings from a young age, and I witnessed fairly similar behavior. Right. But it was very hard moving into an already established household. It's not like the Brady Bunch. No, not at all. like the Brady no. Bunch. No. And I don't know if you could really have six children in two bedrooms. No. Mm-mm. Yeah. Yeah, th- this had to be something that was smoldering for a long time, and this house situation was a trigger. Mm-hmm. And I don't think so much that it was about the land as it was just about their relationships. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's look at motive for a minute. Andrew's a plain living man. He's fairly frugal. He lives simply. He didn't need much. He did not want to live a lavish lifestyle, and that did annoy Lizzie. It's critical to understand Lizzie's relationship with her father. And it muddles any motivation that she may have had for killing him. Abby? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. We've definitely established that there is a history of tension, dislike. But is there enough to murder her with an axe? (laughs) That's debatable, as nothing that day seems enough to trigger such an event. I'm certain that it might be much more about the buildup over the years. And if Lizzie is the responsible party, she may have just snapped that day. I mean, what, this was five years of tension that was just building up yeah, yeah. okay because that remember the house thing was five years mm-hmm. earlier yeah that's an awful long time to hang on to that yeah but they they managed to do it talk about holding on to a grudge Ooh. lizzie needs some self-care today <sighs> tell you too. it's something that speaks to andrew and lizzie's relationship in 1890 andrew sends lizzie on a tour of europe as a 30th birthday gift Kara doesn't go into great detail on her european tour but her tour is described in parallel lives With a number of unmarried women, including Borden cousins, Lizzie first went to Ireland, visiting the Ross and Blarney castles, the marvelous 15th century Muckrose Abbey, the Gap of Dunlow, the Old Weir and Cromwell Bridges. In Scotland, she sang about the Bonnie Body Banks of Loch Lomond, Highland Castle. She developed a love of all things Scottish. A Shakespeare fan, she and the ladies visit his birthplace, the mountains of the Lake District, the Cumbian studying lakes of Werwent, Crumman, Crumock, and Ullswater. Then they go to the Canterbury Castle, Oxford University, Warwick Castle, Windsor Castle. Castle, it, castle, castle. I think she liked castles. <laughs> Girl liked castles. In Holland, she joins Amsterdam. Germany, guess what? Castles. Castles. Heidelberg Castle. Ooh. Cologne Cathedral. Finally got a church in there. Yeah, you know, I, in Europe, I feel like all I ever do is churches. I think I need to see more castles. Uh, we gotta do the castles. We gotta tour. do the castles. Yep, yep. Uh, Munich, they saw the statue of King Ludwig I. Cool. Fancy. In Switzerland, amazing peaks, the Rhone Glacier, visited the clock tower Mountains. in Bern. Now she's in Milan, Venice, Rome, Paris, Nice, Monte Carlo, returns back to Liverpool, and heads back to the United States after a four month adventure was there anywhere she didn't go <laughs> it's, it seems I like she was I, everywhere i think she hit all the spots but four months how much would a four-month tour cost I remember mean, there's no planes yeah we're traveling by ocean liner back and forth and for somebody who was so frugal this, this is a pretty extravagant thing 
Well, happy 30th birthday, Lizzie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if this gift doesn't help you understand the relationship between Lizzie and her father, I mean, I don't know what else does. Clearly, the man loved his daughter. He gives her this extravagant gift. And I'm relatively sure that she loved him back. You know, when, I think when, so. When you lose your mother that young and as a toddler, you really develop a love for your father. And that gets amplified. And when you grow up, that bond does remain a very deep, strong affection. So leading up to the days before the murder, illness actually strikes the Borden household. Again, it's very hot. Very was hot. it the heat? With no refrigeration, getting food poisoning was not all that uncommon and was referred to as having the summer complaint. Yeah. How proper. Mm -hmm. Should they have eaten that leftover swordfish? I, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> Abby tried visiting the doctor across the street, Dr. Seabury Bowen, and confides that she thinks she might have been poisoned. What an what? odd thing to say. Yeah. In a somewhat comical fashion, Dr. Bowen actually walks her back across the street and wants to take a look at Andrew. Andrew stands there in the doorway, probably holding his stomach, screaming at him that he's not going to pay for a doctor's visit. I didn't ask you to come over here. Don't <laughs> yep. you make a house call. I'm not paying for this. I can, I can, I can, I can picture scene. it, too. And Abby kind of holding her head. Yeah. Her pom, pom face. Not, I know. know. She, the poor woman. She just oh. wants to make sure everyone's okay. Oh. And the following night, they have something completely different for dinner. Mutton stew. And again, members of the family fall ill. Hmm. And what's also significant to mention here, because this is the night before the murder, Emma's not in the house. She's not right. in the house. Emma's not home. She's about 30 miles away in Fairhaven. 30 miles for us today isn't so bad, but when you're in a trolley car, it's a decent trip. Yes, yeah, she's not next door. Yeah. Yeah, she's at him. So prosecutors would later go on to say that these occurrences were suggestive of an opportunity to a person desiring to procure the deaths of one or other of those people. Huh. So premeditated. Huh. Poisoning was viewed as a woman's method of killing in the late 19th century. According to a study done by Randa Hellfield, 19th century criminology studies show that murderesses use poison more often than any other method. For example, in one survey, it was shown that between 1875 and 1880, 6.8 out of every 10 poisoners were women. In Pollock's book, The Criminality of Women, he concludes that Victorian society created a perfect storm for the attributes necessary for women, considered to be the weaker sex, to kill in secrecy using cunning in an area which they were intimately in control. So meal preparation and care of the sick. And Pollock also writes... One could speculate that it was a crime ideally suited to the skills of Victorian women trained in deception. Sound like spies. However, Andrew and Abby Borden were not murdered by poison, nor did Abby go to the police in fear of her life. But they would not live to eat another supper. One organization that Tara and I fully support is the DNA Doe Project. Founded in 2017, the DNA Doe Project endeavors to bring cold cases that is, bodies left unidentified for decades, to be identified using new DNA technology and procedures. Their goal is to reunite the missing and lost with their families, and they've been successful. Recently, a 37-year-old mystery of a young woman called Buckskin Girl was solved, and Buckskin Girl has a name. She is Marcia L. King, and she's been reunited with her family. Any money donated to this organization goes to agencies who need help funding the lab work required to process these cases. The DNA Doe Project is completely volunteer, so if you're in a position to give and support the project, 
The information is on our Murder Shelf Book Club blog. You can also opt to upload your DNA profile to GEDmatch. I have. This is such a worthy cause, as everyone who's into true crime knows. So back to our story. The night before, Lizzie speaks of her concerns and fears to her friend, Alice Russell. She says, I feel as if something is hanging over me that I can't throw off. And it comes over me at times no matter where I am. I don't know. Somebody will do something. Now, is this an alibi? Is this foreboding? She's setting the scene. Is she? Mm-hmm. Framing She's the framing. situation? Adelaide Churchill, a notorious curtain twitcher. This is like my favorite descriptor in the entire book. I love Adelaide. Oh, she's a notorious curtain twitcher. And a neighbor of the Bordens will see Lizzie standing in the doorway. And she says, Lizzie, Lizzie, what's the matter? Oh, Mrs. Churchill, do come over. Someone has killed father. This line gets me every time. Oh, Mrs. Churchill, do come over. It's yeah. just so proper sounding, well, considering yes, what just happened. And, shock, and yes. you're like, oh, oh, please. You know, <laughs> townspeople and the police swing into motion. These are early days of the police investigation. Chief Marshal Rufus Hilliard pulls the small police force on duty. Kara tells us that this is a really inconvenient day for a Very crime. Can we just like hold off tomorrow and kill people? Because not today. Yeah, you might as busy. well. They're at, they're at a picnic. The, the police force is having the annual picnic. Now, would someone know this and plan to murder on a day when as few police officers as possible would be available? Maybe. Again, I'm very suspicious. I'm a true crimer. Mm-hmm. All right. Back in the day, there's no cell phones. There are no radios. Patrolman George Allen was sent to the Borden house. And guess what? He finds Andrew Borden hacked to pieces. All right. No one in the house or the immediate area has seen anything nor heard anything. Now, remember, they live on a busy street. So hearing sounds would have been picked up on, mm-hmm. especially in this kind of attack, or if they saw someone running away from the scene, you know, that might have been noted. Alan essentially grabs this poor man, Charles Sawyer, and deputizes him and says, stand here you know, while I run to the station and get assistance. And Sawyer would really later regret being a nosy neighbor. <laughs> he was really being noisy. No- yeah. Nosy. He's going to wind up there for about seven hours <sighs> of duty. Wow. Yeah, don't deputize me. I'll probably solve the crime before you get back. Um, As friends and neighbors come to Lizzie's aid, one of the first questions asked of her was, well, where were you? Yeah. yeah. She first mentions that she was in the barn, so they have a barn in the back of the house, and that she was looking for pieces of iron to make a sinker for her fishing line. And she was going to be going on a fishing trip. But she came back to the house after hearing a strange noise. And when asked of Mrs. Borden, she claimed that Abby had received a note from a friend who was sick. Just just to note, at that time, people made sick calls to people who were ill. Today, when people get ill, we'll text them, we'll make a phone call, but we don't go anywhere yeah. near sick people. But back then, it was very, very common to make calls to people who were ill. Absolutely. So when Lizzie comes back in, she finds her father dead and, oh my goodness. Right. Well, where's Abby? Has anyone, we got to go find Abby. We got to tell her Andrew's dead. Yeah, she's got to be notified. So Bridget, their Irish maidservant, doesn't forget about her and is, yeah, where is she? And Lizzie contradicts her original statement of having Abby go out. Maybe there wasn't a sick note, but that she believes she thought she heard Abby return. So Dr. Seabury Bowen, who's been called at this time, he lives across the street. He's the warden's trusted doctor and neighbor. He's also the first doctor on site to see the bodies. 
And he says this may have been one of the more gruesome things he had ever seen as a doctor. He's visibly shaken. I mean, he see he comes in, he sees Andrew on the couch, blood everywhere. It's to the point where he's unrecognizable. His head is literally just a mess. He probably wouldn't have known if it was him, other than the fact that Lizzie knew her father was taking a nap on the couch. Right. Adelaide, Churchill, and Bridget go upstairs, and that's where they find Abby's body. Upstairs. Upstairs in the guest bedroom. She's lying face down, and Dr. Bowen actually goes and relays that he checks the body, and due to the state of blood surrounding her head, due to coagulation, she was probably killed. First, hmm. considering the fact that we have a potential sick note, she was out, but nobody heard anything. Lizzie heard something out in the barn coming back in. Mm-hmm. Something was going on there. We'll obviously get more to this later, because right now it's just kind of like a cluster. Nobody knows what's happening. And you think true crime draws a crowd today? Huh. Well, that day of the murders, hundreds of people show up in front of the boarding house. And then the next, there's 1,500 people outside their home. Standing outside their yeah. home. Yeah. But, but wait until we get to the trial. Oh, my gosh. So you don't even want to know. Obviously, when we discussed I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara, a lot of the things that we suggested, especially in a quiet, lazy town of like Irvine, Goleta, all these California towns... Gruesome crime and murder just didn't happen. It was extremely rare. And I think that we're seeing that also in this instance. It's rare, and therefore, it's going to be a spectacle. Oh, absolutely. Nothing like this goes on. It's very, very rare. First thing that the Fall River Police Department tries to do is establish some kind of timeline. Let's account for people's positions. Where were you when? Yeah, so all the confusion that we kind of just went through is going to be laid out here and made a little bit more clear. At 7 a.m., Abby and Andrew have breakfast with Uncle John Morse, who's visiting. Is it a coincidence that he shows up and a murder occurs? Might be. Just asking. Might be. Just, you know, just yeah. asking. 8.45, John Morse is going to depart the house and go visit relatives. At 8.50, Lizzie now comes down, has breakfast and coffee and cookies by herself. That's my favorite breakfast, coffee and cookies. Oh, absolutely. I'm so bad. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. At 9.15... Andrew leaves, he's got tasks, and Abby asks Bridget if she wouldn't mind washing windows outside. 9.30, Abby goes up to the guest room, and she will be struck 19 times with some unknown Ooh. weapon, shattering her skull and separating the skin from her oh, God. Side note, the Fall River Herald, which is the local paper, makes a very insensitive comment it as is. Abby weighs close to 200 pounds. The women in the house should have noticed when she fell and hit the ground. It's so awful. That it's, it is. It, it really is. Believe it or not, this becomes a huge point in the investigation itself. Could Abby falling be heard in the house? We asked Kara if they attempted to reenact this to find out. Oh, repeatedly. <laughs> And this is what Kara had to say about this. And we don't mean to be insensitive, but they really did do this. They really did. They really did. She said they still do this to this day. And they do mention her weight consistently, as we've said. So now at 1045, Andrew comes home and he's fumbling with the lock and fumbling with the lock. He can't get in. Lizzie is on the staircase descending, laughs as Andrew's struggling and Bridget goes to the front door to unlock it for him. So who locked the front door? Hmm. 
Now, Lizzie is coming down the stairs and may have a direct line into the room where her stepmother lies dead. Now, I have a photograph that I took from this exact spot. It's kind of doubtful. Unless you are actually looking for a dead body or looking for Abby or something caught your attention there, it's really difficult to see anything. And I've seen the photo, too, while we were watching the Ted Bundy special last night. (laughs) (laughs) Jill was showing me some of the photos, and you're probably not going to see this. Yeah, you're just going to zip down the stairs, especially if your attention is on the front Mm -hmm. door. Exactly. Which is Bridget's here. Dad's trying to get in, and you're snickering a little bit because it turns out that Bridget was cussing or something. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because she couldn't get the door open. Right. Bridget is now inside, and she's washing windows, but she's really not feeling good because of the whole food poisoning thing. So she goes through the house to the back staircase and goes to lie down. Thursday was her half day of work. Anyway, she'll be out of the picture. Now, somewhere between 10.45 and 11.45, Andrew lies down to take a nap, and he is struck in the face with some kind of axe, hatchet, some kind of weapon during his nap, and is murdered. Kara asked the reader, which everyone should really be asking themselves, how did an assassin manage to commit his crimes without attracting the attention of Lizzie Borden or Bridget Sullivan? Mind you, the two were home the entire time in the house that has an extremely odd architecture and locking Mm -hmm. system in place. So how did the unknown assailant hide in the house for close to two hours? Because there is about an hour and a half between the murders. And we know that because of the coagulation of the blood from Abby and the fact that when Dr. Bowen was examining Andrew, he noted that the blood was still warm. Yes. The front door and the cellar doors were said to be locked. The other obvious entryway, you have Bridget. We still don't know how this could have happened. Unless you are extremely lucky, somebody would have most likely seen you. Jill has thoughts on this. I have we'll, we'll talk about that. And not just plenty of people <laughs> yeah. have thoughts, too. I have a theory. We just want to switch gears for a minute and discuss the sociological, economic, and even some politics of this time period, as it's going to be important as we get through the inquest, the preliminary hearing, and the trial. Most importantly, Fall River is known for textile production, and it's the third largest city in Massachusetts with a population of roughly 90,000 people. That's quite, that's quite a bit. And like other cities of the day, Fall River was divided into highly restrictive social groups based on class, religion, and ethnicity. So you had your Protestant elite, which consisted of families like the Bordens, the Durfees, the Braytons. And the Bordens actually used to own the water power of the Cochachan River. If I said that incorrectly, someone please write to me. That was a tough <laughs> Let one. Let us know. Yes. Yeah, um, which is extremely important in a mill town where running water powers everything. So why were Lizzie and Emma so upset about their social standing? Well, unfortunately, Andrew was a part of the wrong Borden clan. They were of the lesser Bordens. And at his death, his wealth wouldn't compare to his cousins, Colonel Richard Borden. This leads us to another aspect of a potential motive. If Lizzie did kill her father, did she expect him to be worth more? Did she expect that she and Emma would take everything and be welcomed into the open arms of their distant cousins? The girls even chose to attend the Central Congregational Church where the upper crust of Fall River attended, and not the more modest one in which Andrew actually had a pew. As a woman of status, Lizzie tried to improve her social standing by volunteering to teach Chinese immigrants at the church's Sunday school. She was secretary-treasurer of the local chapter of the Christian Endeavor Society, a member of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and the Ladies' Fruit and Flower Mission. Sounds like some fun stuff to do when you're a lady of the times. Remember, middle-class women didn't have a lot to do. Mm -hmm. You couldn't work in the mills. Yep. 
You couldn't open your own store. Mm -hmm. You volunteered at all these different agencies and organizations. Mm -hmm. And so for them, we know that this obviously wasn't enough for her. No. It should also be noted that outsiders, even those marrying into these rich and affluent families, still struggle to fit in. You remember that scene in Titanic where Jack comes up and he sits with them and they talk about old money and new money? Yes. yes. It's, it's just like that. It's old money. Well, even Molly Brown with her new money mm-hmm. was being ostracized. Exactly. That's so a true story. There is an example in the book of a couple of women who are trying to marry into these families. Not to mention, even with that struggle... Could you imagine if you're an immigrant coming to the United States? Oh, boy. The large influx of immigrants coming in were the Irish Catholics, French Canadians, and the Portuguese. And they were just coming over here in droves, which probably drove Fall River's population up to a 90,000 at the time. Mm-hmm. In July of 1864, there was actually an immigration law that was passed, and it said corporations could literally import workers and withhold a percentage of their wages for the first year in order to defray the cost of their passage. Is that not indentured servitude? Yeah, pretty much is. Okay. Yeah. Just just wanted to make sure. But you could pay immigrants less I know. than native-born Americans mm-hmm. at that time. And just like that, by the 1890s, nearly everyone who worked at the mills were immigrants. And I know, like Jill said before, when we first started talking about women in the area, they used to be able to work in the mills. But this was prior to a, quote-unquote, proper role of women being established, in which addition to the immigration laws, proper women, so those of middle-class standing and native-born, working there was no longer an option. No, not at all. The social groups in Fall River actually lived in separate geographic areas. It's an interesting little town, and it's built vertically. The higher up you are from the river, the richer you are. You just so, think of like the rice paddy fields almost. <laughs> yeah, you just you Or is rise, it the tea ones? I you, can't remember. You rise up the terracing. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. But you rise up from the river. So at the bottom, you have the immigrants, like we were just saying, the newly arrived who live near the mill. And topographically, they are at the lower echelon Mm -hmm. of society. As you move up a little bit, the business owners live on the flats. And this is where you find your middle class, your professional Irish Catholics, your French Canadians, some Yankee elites. This is where the Bordens live, South Main Street, less than one half mile from the shore. On the same level as the Borden House, it's 119 feet, about the mean high water mark as the Taunton River. I love this analysis, too, just how they compare the water marks, too, to where all these people live. Yeah. It's very interesting. It it is. The the whole geographic taking so much a part of your social life, Mm -hmm. it is. It's fascinating. Now, this suited Andrew, but it certainly didn't suit the girls. No wonder they didn't find husbands. They really weren't able to socialize with anybody suitable. Who's going to walk downhill? Because they're living with French Canadians, Catholics, and some Yankee elites, but mostly people who were just in business. Mm -hmm. The elite area is known as the hill. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not exactly a unique (laughs) name. No, no, no. Not at all. But you literally lived higher up than Mm -hmm. everybody else on the hill. And Highland Avenue... Highland. Yes. <laughs> which marks the upper boundary of the city's elite district. And it runs literally 254 to 355 feet above the river. Okay. So that way if the river floods, your elite are saved. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Literally in good standing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So early in the 1890s, we're going to see a major political shift going on. The Irish Catholics start coming into power, and they're going to beat out some of the prominent Yankees, who are the native-born, who have always held positions of power. The first Catholic mayor is elected, John W. Cummings, and along with a Catholic uh, physician, John W. Coughlin. 
So they had a mayor and then they had a physician also who was like in charge of everything. And what Lizzie does when her father is found shows this schism between the Catholics and the Protestants. Lizzie and the Bordens do not interact with Catholic neighbors. And when her father's found dead, she summons Dr. Bowen, not the Catholic doctors, Dr. Chignon or Dr. Kelly, who live next door to her. Literally next door. Literally right (laughs) next door. Moving on to our list of early suspects. Ooh, this is going to be fun. Yes. It's important to note, just as Kara has, that the early European models of criminology, especially those that we learned from Caesar Lombardo, Mm -hmm. an Italian criminologist, had established that criminals were born, not made. Mm -hmm. It is all nature and no nurture involved here at this point. Physical attributes of a person advertised their criminal nature. So those who looked more like primates or Neanderthals with a sloping forehead, large ears, longer than normal arms, an asymmetry of the face, these are the characteristics of criminals. How many of you are grabbing your ears right now? <laughs> I know I was. I was checking. <laughs> I was checking. I, mean, I don't even know what that means I'm going today. to check the, sim- the symmetry of my face. Yeah. It's like, you know, just one eye a little are bit Are my bigger. glasses crooked on my head? Does that make my ears crooked? <laughs> I don't know. Well, look, remember, this is criminology of the late 19th century. Yes, yes. Fortunately, we've left all that behind. We've evolved. Yes. No pun intended. Oh, that was terrible. <laughs> that was terrible. All right, so the police are going to first focus on immigrants because they are the outsiders, and people have major xenophobia going oh, absolutely. on at this time. Mary Ashton Rice Livermore. That's a mouthful. A, is a very famed suffragette and temperance advocate. She states at the time, they are discharged, convicts, paupers, lunatics, imbeciles, people suffering from loathsome and contagious diseases, illiterates, defectives. They were maniacs. So basically anyone who didn't live on the hill. Yeah, if you lived down by the the river, you were a suspect. Yes. Marsha Rufus Hilliard begins rounding up the usual suspects, many of whom are these immigrants Mm -hmm. we've talked about. And Kara found that in recent years, more than two-thirds of those arrested were non-native, that is, non-citizens. Did an immigrant working for the Bordens have an axe to grind, (laughs) we have to ask? Hmm. What was her name again? We're so funny. Maggie? Maggie? Bridget? Bridget? Some Irish name? You know. They even investigated someone who's found with a bloody axe, but they let that guy go because the axe was too dull and old to have caused the Borden's injuries. But at least they were looking for something specific. They are actually looking for a weapon. If anyone's into spiritualism or mesmerism, and we're not going to get into it too much, some believe that a clue to the murder's identities could be found in the victim's eyes, like a photograph being taken at the moment of death. So if you looked into his eyes, you could see the killer. Yes, you could get his image. Can you imagine getting so up close to his eyeball? Well, oh my goodness. Yeah, it's it's I, morbid. Morbid. Yep. Mediums stuck their two cents in, and one said, Arrest Morse, Lizzie, and the man at Westport. What man? How many men? There's 90,000 people. I didn't do my due diligence on Westport, but there's probably more than one man. I assume so. We just have to go through all of them. (laughs) John V. Morse, Andrew's brother-in-law, Lizzie's biological mother's brother, he was also a suspect because he shows up the day before and the murder takes place. Mm -hmm. But he has the best alibi ever. Mm -hmm. I have to say, this is such a horrible crime. And yet I laughed out loud reading this. He states that he had been riding a streetcar and he knew the streetcar number. Exactly. And then he is on the streetcar with six priests. Six priests. Now, come on. How lucky is that? 
It was confirmed that they were on there. They don't recall seeing him, but if he recalls that specifically and the exact streetcar number, the alibi holds water. Yeah. Who else would happen to know, come running back over to him and say, listen, this is your alibi. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. He has the perfect alibi. There's rumors, too, that Lizzie regarded him with more tenderness Mm. than a niece should feel for their uncles. I'm pretty sure she didn't give a rat's ass about him, (laughs) and we'll get to more of that about their relationship. There was also a man named Charles Peckham who turns himself in and says, I did it. I killed them. But he actually gets released, and it was because he was well-known for suffering from mental illness. It's a false confession. We get a few of those here and there every once in a while. Yeah. Or family physician, Dr. Seabury Bowen, he was also considered a suspect. The doctor. In the gossip mill. It was in overdrive. Jill mentioned about her uncle, the tenderness. His actions of the day were extremely questionable, which is why there were so many things kind of swirling around him. So he advised a medical explanation, and we'll talk about this more, but there was some bloody towels that are going to be found in the cellar, and they're sitting in a pail. And he says that they're Lizzie's menstrual cloths. They weren't used to wipe any blood off of anyone or anything. And what's also weird here is that an officer comes in and asks Lizzie about them, and she essentially says, nope, nope, go ask Dr. Bowen. The two are covering for her with Dr. Bowen's explanation. Bridget mentions she didn't notice the pal until that day. Was she intentionally trying to throw Lizzie under a bus, diverting suspicion from herself as the Irish Catholic maid? I don't know. He also tried to prevent the police from speaking to Lizzie when they first came to the house to ask her questions. So they were upstairs in her bedroom. They had the door closed. And they were trying to come into the room to search her closet for her clothing. You mean a proper 32-year-old spinster was in her bedroom with the door shut with Dr. Bowen? Mm Mm-hmm. Huh. Talking about menstrual cloths? Yes. (gasps) Scandalous. I know this doesn't happen at the house, but Officer Harrington would later witness something strange when he's at Dr. Bowen's. He sees him tossing some scraps of paper into the fire, and he said... That it was a letter from his daughter. I guess it was just common practice to burn letters, was it? I don't know. We find this happening more often than not in this case where there's a couple letters that are burned. Yeah. This letter that Dr. Bowen says from his daughter, Harrington sees the name Emma on there. Emma's Lizzie's sister. And I bet you anything his daughter's name wasn't Emma. Nope, it was Florence. Huh. So, here you go. Well, there you go. Because of all of these things that Dr. Bowen was doing to essentially, quote-unquote, protect Lizzie, some people thought he might have been Lizzie's lover. Did you know that they walked to church together? Oh, my. Did they sit next to each they other in a pew? did. In a pew. In church. Oh, my together. God. Oh, my God. Could have written a scandal rag. I know. And we consulted. I mean, we, a million they dollars. should have had podcasks back then. They Could you imagine? <laughs> So Bridget Sullivan also came under scrutiny as a viable suspect. I mean, she's Irish, God forbid. She had the physical capacity to swing an axe as chopping wood fell into her line of duties. There it is. That's it. Yep. And it was believed that Lizzie didn't have the physical strength to chop wood or swing an axe. Let me tell you a little story about axes. You have a story about axes? I I do. Oh, dear God. It's great because I've never held an axe before in my life. And then in December... I had the wonderful opportunity of holding many axes on two separate occasions. A serial axer. You go, girl. <laughs> so one was when we actually came over. Jill had our little Christmas brunch for our book club oh, yeah. where we spoke with Kara. 
And Mark, who's one of our book club members, we have a running joke that he might also be a serial killer. Um, (laughs) He carries a little briefcase type of bag and he puts the bag down. He opens it and he has an axe in there. I'm like, Mark, is is that your hit kit for the day? He goes, no, I just wanted to show you how easy it was to conceal An an axe. Which I thought was brilliant. Yes, it was roughly the same size that was considered to be the weapon. We were just kind of laughing about it, and I think we have pictures of me just holding the axe, and I'm holding on to it during the interview with Kara. She's like, what do you got there? I'm like, an axe? What's an axe? You know, it's prop. We got to get into the mood. I also, when I was visiting family up in Syracuse, we also went axe throwing. As you do when you visit family. Yes, axe throwing. throwing. Yeah. Sure. So they teach you how to throw an axe, and it's basically, you want to get into almost like a lunge type stance, because you're going to want momentum. So you hold the axe with two hands, you lift it, you bring it up over your head, and you throw, kind of come into a lunge, and you use your body weight to throw it. You don't really use your arms. It's more of the momentum of the whole motion. This sounds like a catapult. Yes. And what I was thinking of, like, went to go throw it the first time, and then I was like, wait a minute, we just read a book on this. And I'm thinking, this is almost kind of like a similar motion where you're bringing it up over your head. It's similar to maybe somebody chopping, slashing at somebody with an axe, like maybe Lizzie would have done or whoever was responsible for this. And I'm going to say, I'm not overly physical with my upper body. I do my chores. I do yoga, but I'm not doing push-ups and I'm not doing any heavy lifting. But I will say, in axe throwing for about an hour and a half, I finally started to feel a little fatigued because you get like a two-hour window. So I think that if you don't necessarily have that much body strength, you could still do this, especially to swing an axe into softer tissue, like someone's head. Huh. Your husband, Dan, did say that skulls were actually softer than wood. Yes. Confirmed for us. Exactly. That it's easier to chop skulls than it is to chop wood. Well, I am really proud of you for channeling your inner Borden for us. I know. That's that's pretty awesome. That's research. Yes. So while Bridget was seen outside when the murders took place, this essentially cleared her as it fits in with the timeline the medical experts would provide. Then we come to Lizzie Borden herself. She's 32-year-old spinster. Dear God, I should stop calling her this. I know. But But (laughs) I know Kara... It's part of the times. It it is. (sighs) Kara said she would always be a house guest in her father's home. And I feel like that really resonated with me just because I know I don't live at home anymore. But just thinking about if I were 32 and still living at home. And then you get in an argument with your stepmother. So that tension that we said. That would be awkward. Julian Ralph, who he's going to be one of the most prominent reporters of the trial and who's going to write a lot about everything that's going on in the town, would consider it a wretched phase of life. She's 5'4", light complexion, light colored hair and gray eyes. She's described as a monument of straightforwardness with an extremely calm demeanor. And many reports illustrate Lizzie as self-possessed. However, she might have been in shock, I think, initially, because a lot of people thought her demeanor was weird, which is why I think she becomes such a viable suspect. It's just like the lack of emotion after the murders and Marshall Fleet actually comments, I don't like that girl. But if you knew that the entire press corps of the world was sitting there watching you, would you put on a show for them or would you just kind of shut down, tighten up and sit there? I don't know. I think I would just shut down and not give them anything. Well, obviously people react differently. So maybe this this was just her way of reacting. Yeah. So her estranged uncle Hiram Harrington, say that 10 times fast, more or less accused Lizzie directly saying, when the perpetrator of this foul deed is found, it will be one of the household. Abby's brother-in-law also accused Lizzie along with her uncle John Morse. So they were in on it together and he accused them of hiring someone to get the two of them out of the way. 
Hmm. So what would she stand to gain from murdering her father and stepmother? Was she going to own their house if they were both out of the way? Yeah. What was the life expectancy in the late 1800s? About 40 years old, roughly. Okay, so Abby and Andrew, they're they're pretty high up there. 65 and 70. They're already in overtime. All right. Yes. So we'll see this again, but obviously we're going to see a lot of inconsistencies with Lizzie's story as to where she was. And this is why she's a suspect. And finally, we have a few shadow figures floating around out there, and a lot of them, Lizzie was the one to bring to the forefront. I don't know if it was to deflect from her or just to say, hey, somebody was really responsible for this. I don't know who. There's a man with whom Andrew had a dispute over renting some property. Then there's also a shadowy figure lurking around the house around 9 p.m. the night before the murders. Although she did say 9 p.m., she wasn't really certain of the time or the date, but she said it was definitely when Emma had already left for Fairhaven. And then the next day after the murders, Lizzie and Emma actually offered a $5,000 reward for anyone who may be able to deliver the culprit, in addition to finding the recipient of the sick note. Yeah. But no one ever came forward for either. And they actually even hired a Pinkerton detective. There's not a lot about this in the book, but after two days, he was just gone. Yeah, don't know what happened to him. You know, I thought about this reward, especially for trying to find who sent the sick note. And with all the press around and the circus environment, would you sit here and say, oh, it was me? No, probably not. (laughs) No. I have so much integrity. Solve crimes, solve mysteries. I'm right there. But I'm trying to put myself into that mindset. Most women are not spinsters. Mm -hmm. They are married. If I said to my husband, well, I sent the note to Abby. Do you think he would let me stick my hand up and say it was me and insert myself into this? Probably not. Not on your life. So I don't know if it's suspicious that no one did come forth. Because who in their right mind in that environment would? I know. I just, I I do believe in good Samaritanism, but at the same time, I'm not stopping on the side of the road if you're broken down. I'll call the police, come help you. All right, so August 6th, 1892, the girls are leaving their home, and they are going to the funerals of Abby and Andrew Borden. They step out of their house. They set off down the street. I'm and sure the there's police, crowds of people are there, too. They, they, the police descend on the residence, which, of course, stirs up the crowds even mm-hmm. more. Now they are going to, like, thoroughly investigate, go through the house without the girls being there. And, unfortunately, what's really frustrating is that fingerprint analysis isn't going to be used because it's not going to exist for another 10 years. Mm-hmm. And with this whole big search, nothing really of great substance is discovered. First, we're traumatized by cold cases, and now there's just no technology to even do anything. I know. Police do advise that the bodies should not be buried. And while it looks like the funeral's taking place, once all the mourners leave, Emma and Lizzie leave, The bodies are actually taken back to the morgue. Hold that thought. The bodies are not buried. And I don't think Emma and Lizzie were told about it. The girls are not told about this. As far as they know, they have been buried. They've put their family members to rest. And this is when things start to move rather rapidly. Within a few days, the inquest will begin. Now, this is where Kara is using her legal background. And she explains the judicial proceedings that are going to take place. An inquest is a judicial inquiry that's required by state law in the cases of violent or unexplained death. This particular inquest is presided over by the second district court judge, Josiah C. Blaisdell, who is the former mayor. And this is largely secret. This is not something that is open to the public and everyone's watching. This is going behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. So the morning of Tuesday, August 9th, Officer Patrick Doherty comes to take Bridget to testify. 
And she certainly has every reason to be terrified. Mm-hmm. Blaming the Irish immigrant is a very likely scenario. So in here it's double not the homicide. Husband. It's yeah. not the husband. It's, it's going to be the husband. Irish immigrant. Right. The husband's dead. So who's next? Oh, the Irish immigrant. She cries all the way, expressing her love and loyalty to Abby. Abby and was how really good to were. her. Abby was good to her. Well, she has to be good to somebody in the house. Exactly. This is the only person <laughs> besides know. Andrew that'll talk to her. She's loyal. She's explaining how things are in the household, the animosity towards Abby from the girls. She had actually threatened to quit her job on multiple occasions. Mm-hmm. Abby talked her into staying. District Attorney Hosea Knowlton leads the proceedings. Reporter described him as having a head as hard as iron set on a neck that is a tower of strength. His shoulders are a yard apart. His legs are a foundation of a bridge. He is by nature combative and snorts like a warhorse. I hope everyone is picturing this man right now. I, this is descriptive. You can't make this stuff up. Snorts like a warhorse? That's yeah. got to be pleasant to be around. And this is from newspapers back in the day. Yeah. yeah. All right, so now what could the girls possibly be afraid of? <laughs> I don't know. Well, there's a lot on the table here, okay? This is a murder inquest. A trial and a conviction would result in the death penalty. And believe it or not, Knowlton is actually a strict opponent of capital punishment. He advises that exempting minors and women from the death penalty is probably a really a good idea. However, the law is the law, and Knowlton is expected to do his due diligence. And over the course of the inquest, Knowlton was looking to determine motive and opportunity. Jill and I are happy to promote the Thread Network, which is the first true crime dashboard that lets followers search, save, share, and submit information on unsolved cold cases all in one place. Adding new cases each day, users can view materials on Susan Cox Powell, Amy Mihaljevic, JonBenet Ramsey, and Alyssa Turney. Follow them on Instagram at The Thread Network or register today at www.thethreadnetwork.com to join the discussion. Let's shed some light in the dark of these cold cases. The Thread Network where true crime content and community come together. Now, Bridget is cooperative during the inquest. She describes her movements that day. She cleaned the breakfast dishes. She washed the outside windows as Abby directed. She chatted with the neighbor's housemaid, and then she moved inside. But she felt tired. Remember, she had some food poisoning, and she decided to lie down, still feeling the effects of the food poisoning. Thursday was her half day. She stated she had seen Lizzie in the morning, but really couldn't account for her whereabouts at all times. Now, this contradicted statements to Lizzie, who said that Bridget was within her sight most of the morning. But I guess if she's outside washing windows and Lizzie's inside, she might have seen Bridget, but Bridget didn't see her. Just trying to, in my mind, walking around the house watching what's going on here. Yeah. Anyway, Lizzie eventually calls for her, says father is dead, and sends her off to get Dr. Bowen. Bridget runs to get the doctor who isn't in. Then it's Lizzie's turn. The Borden family lawyer, Andrew Jennings, requests to be present at the inquest, but the court ultimately will not let him attend the proceedings as Lizzie is being interrogated. Now, this is a key point. Her lawyer was denied entry. Knowlton saw no reason to allow Jennings to interfere in the questioning of the suspect, and the court says that that is fine. It's fine. That's not a problem. (laughs) Now, this is all taking place before the 1966 Miranda warning becomes a law and a right. And that's a Supreme Court ruling that before questioning by the police, suspects must be informed that they have the right to remain silent 
They have the right to consult an attorney, and anything they say may be used against them in the court of law. Today, Jennings likely wouldn't allow Lizzie to be questioned, or if he did, he'd certainly be there to protect her, especially her right to non-self-incrimination. So you'd think that she'd probably just plead the fifth, I would imagine. Yes, but you actually couldn't do that in 1892. So Lizzie appears before the inquest at 2 p.m. She was asked if Andrew and Abby had any enemies, and she does say that there is one man who had threatened Andrew because he refused to rent the man some property. In addition to her uncle, Hiram Harrington, that was all she was aware of. Knowlton makes a point of bringing up the fact that Lizzie switched from referring to Abby as mother to Mrs. Borden and the incident about the property that was given to Abby's sister and that had caused the rift five years earlier. Was this enough of a motive for murder? Throughout Lizzie's inquest testimony, she's very cagey and contradictory. It was painful reading this testimony, I oh, will it's say. Terrible. <laughs> she, she is all over the place. Yeah, she really is. He asked her if her relationship with Abby was cordial. And she says, well, it depends on one's idea of cordiality, perhaps. So Knowlton tries again. Well, according to your idea of cordiality. And Lizzie agrees that they were friendly. <laughs> so frustrated, Knowlton tries again. According to your idea of cordiality. And Lizzie responds, quite so. I don't mean the dearest of friends in the world, but a kind feeling and pleasant. It's like, yes or no. I mean, we're cordial. Just say yes, what? just say yeah. no. So at one point, she hesitates. I don't know how to answer you any better than what came into my mind. I was trying to think if I was telling it as I should. So he establishes eventually that she changed her clothes from the morning to the afternoon, changing from a navy blue blouse and a navy blue silk skirt to a pink wrapper in the afternoon. And that's the only fact. And that is the that only is fact. The clear-cut fact that they managed to get from Lizzie in her test. Whew. So, Nolan questions Lizzie about her uncle, John Morrison, if his visits were frequent. Oh, this is just <laughs> crazy. So, this is some direct testimony, and I can only imagine that Kara got frustrated from reading this. I think Nolan was frustrated yeah. from reading this. But after establishing that he had visited 14 years ago, he asks how many times had he visited between then and now. She stated once, but did not know if he had since. He then asks, how many times this last year has he been at your house? None at all, so to speak of. Nothing more than a night or two at time. What? <laughs> he's, what? He's literally thwarted at every single question and literally driven out of his mind trying to establish when Morse comes to visit. She's exhaustively inscrutable. She does not care to see him on this visit. She doesn't ask about him. And it's funny because when Morse is on the stand, he explains that he visited in 1865. 1876, 1878, and 1885, and once he stayed for an entire year. I understand at some of those points Lizzie was fairly young, but you would think you'd remember him staying for a whole year. A year might have stuck out. Yes. Yeah. Now came the question of why Lizzie had postponed her trip. Remember, she was supposed to go to the seaside. She yes. was outside in the barn looking for metal to make sinkers for this trip. Yep. So Lizzie had actually sent a letter ahead explaining that she had to attend a meeting that Sunday as secretary treasurer of the Christian Endeavor Society. So she wanted to be at that meeting mm -hmm. and she would join her friends the following Monday. And when all of this came out, concerned for her, her friends burned that letter. So this is a, a possible second letter that's burned. Yeah. They didn't want to. What a burning. Yeah. They, did, they wanted to avoid any misinterpretation. And actually, none of those friends would actually speak to the police. Interesting. Yeah. 
it's funny because Kara's not openly hostile towards Lizzie. She's just determined to go where the evidence pulls her. But she does observe, and this is a quote, at times it seemed that Lizzie was deliberately tormenting Nolan with a Yankee version of the rope-a-dope. <laughs> she answered questions <laughs> as tersely as possible, and when caught in a contradiction, she wiggled out of the bind by suggesting that she had misunderstood the question. Other contradictions include that Abby may have gone up to the spare bedroom to make the bed, and Lizzie would have had to have seen her pass given the layout of the house and the locking system. But while Lizzie claims to be downstairs most of the time, she said she did not see Abby pass as she should have. Lizzie does admit going into the cellar to fetch clean clothes. She also contradicts Bridget's statement saying that she was downstairs when her father came home, not upstairs. And then not more than a couple minutes later, she says she was upstairs when he came around. Like, girl, what are you doing? What? (laughs) Was this when she went upstairs to put a piece of tape on some clothing? Like, she talks about all these things that she's doing. I mean, I know she's probably in shock, but she does a very good job at making herself seem a suspect. But then also, I feel like when the gears are turning, she also does herself to make herself look the victim. Well, she looks like she's trying to obfuscate when she could be just confused herself. Exactly. But what do you make of this? And Nolan's point is that if Lizzie was in the dining room from that vantage point, she would not have been able to miss a supposed intruder. And so he not only implicates Lizzie in this instance, but Bridget too. And as the inquest continues, Lizzie changes her whereabouts around the house. She's no longer in the house. Nope. She's out in the barn. In the barn. Why is she in the barn? Again, looking for metal to make sinkers for a fishing trip. I think, I don't know. I'm still thinking shock factor and the fact that she's on here. The chapter of the book is called Lizzie on the Rack. Yeah. So I can only see this. But she remembered that this lead had been in the upper story five years prior. So five years ago, she remembers this lead's up here. I can understand. It's just a big story change. It makes her look fairly suspicious. You know, I'm not so sure. From Bridget's testimony, we know she was outside washing windows and talking to the next door maid. Then she goes inside and winds up unlocking the front door to admit Andrew around 1045 a.m. So who locked the front door from the inside after Andrew left? Well, just to also, since we're talking about this here, later in the trial, a friend of the family who was coming in after the funeral, he was under the assumption the door would be locked since they all kept everything locked. But he was just able to walk right in. So I don't know if this was just from the fact that Abby and Andrew were no longer there and they were forgetting to lock things or if it was possible that the locking mechanism was working. Yeah, it wasn't working or was unstable do have three different locks, though. Mm-hmm. So this, yeah. and this could also explain the trouble of why Andrew was unable to just open the door and why Bridget was, it, it became a comical scenario of them trying to get this door open. Exactly. Also, when Lizzie informs Mrs. Churchill that father has been killed, remember that? She mentions to her that she's been in the barn looking for lead, but she thought she heard a noise and returned to the house. Who made that noise? Mm-hmm. What was the noise? And with Andrew dead, Lizzie tells Mrs. Churchill she thought that she heard Abby come home. And we absolutely know it wasn't Abby making the sound. So who made that noise that Lizzie Mm -hmm. heard? So there's a lot of noises and sounds that we don't have explanations for that were heard by Lizzie. When we talk about this intruder, somebody came into the house. Didn't somebody see or hear something? Somebody did see or hear something. That was Lizzie. I'm just going to enter in here with my cynicism. Don't want to touch on it too much. She could have been making it up. Jill's rolling her eyes at me right now. She claims to be outside. Yep. She stops and eats some pears. I mean, pear tart. Pear pie. 15, she's yep. out there 15 to 20 minutes. Okay, reasonable. 
but it's hot. And being in a stuffy bar and looking for lead will cause anyone to sit down and have a rest, I would imagine. But it's a problem for Nolan, too. It's a problem because now she's moved herself from the least convenient spot in the house where she would have had to see somebody or something to possibly the most convenient oh, place is. for herself. She does place where herself conveniently. it would have been impossible, impossible for her to see someone entering and exiting the house. Yeah. If someone's trying to exit while she's outside seeing eating pears, pears, then that is unfortunate. Now, if someone is waiting for Lizzie to go back inside... Someone could easily leave, say, out the cellar door in the back of the house. Now, it isn't solid. It does have a glass window because I have been to the Borden house fairly recently. And I still say the tour is well worth the visit. It, it truly is. And that's probably why they actually will take the jury to the house mm-hmm. to see the layout. Oh, and, absolutely. And, yeah, because seeing it is believing it. So are we going to judge her based on what she didn't know or react to the sounds she did say she heard? I'll talk about this later. <laughs> we will continue <laughs> to discuss our theories later. Oh, my goodness. Oh, so Carrie does a fantastic job inserting into all of this the movements and actions of women in the 19th century. To Knowlton, Lizzie's account of her activities seems unfathomable to a man accustomed to having a purpose in life. only men could have a purpose. Right. So who has time to just sit down and dilly-dally while eating pears? <laughs> well, unfortunately for Knowlton, Lizzie's meanderings are not uncharacteristic of women of her standing at that day and time. Each day was kind of benign and monotonous as the next. How would someone be able to account for each and every minute of the day when each and every minute of the day ran into the next day and the next day? Mm -hmm. Uh, Lizzie did say she was ironing handkerchiefs, that she was reading Harper's Magazine, and then she was being about her day. That's not really strange or weird. It's kind of just what they did. I can't say it's very satisfying, Mm -mm. which may very much have led into her dissatisfaction at the way she was living her life. This is another reason why she desires to move up and live on the hill. Social calling would be much more fun in the upper echelons. And remember, you also went on social calls, going about to houses, leaving your calling card. Calling card was a very big deal. You'd stop and make short visits. And yeah, the calling card was a very big deal. So Knowlton really doesn't have a good understanding of women and their roles. Lizzie describing that shadowy figure around the house is really her last commentary on the murders. She will never say another word under oath again. Nope, that's it. She won't say anything else. So just throughout this inquest, we're getting to the end of it. Other relevant testimony comes from a couple various characters. One was Lizzie's close friend, skinny spinster Alice Russell. It's accurate and relevant to understanding her place in society at the time to say that. She was immediately with Lizzie after the murders. She recalled Lizzie saying she went to the barn for lead to fix a window screen, not to make sinkers. However, she could not recall Lizzie having changed outfits that day. And we'll get to this point. There's dresses, the outfits. Like, why would she change? Was that common? Lizzie's seamstress, Hannah Gifford, was actually um, questioned about conversation that she had with Lizzie that could provide a motive. Lizzie said of Abby during a fitting, Abby was a mean old thing, and we don't have anything to do with her, only what we are obliged to. We stay upstairs most of the time. We don't always eat with them. Sometimes we wait until they're through. And to add insult to injury, Lizzie also referred to Abby as fleshy. Oh. Yeah. We're we're back to the the comments. All fingers pointed to Lizzie because there's no way she could have not seen someone come into the house if she was there, like she said. That is pretty much the conclusion at the inquest. Yep. 
So all reports minus the New York Herald state that Lizzie was surprisingly calm when she was arrested. The Herald says she fell into it a fit of abject and pitiable terror. <laughs> That's not Lizzie. No, this does not sound like the Lizzie that we, we've come to know. As a matter of fact, she was so calm when she was arrested, she called to have a power of attorney drawn up so that Emma could manage her properties in her absence. Man, I wish I was that cool and calm and collected. Exactly. I would have been crying and shaking and just, I would have been shattered. Now, Lizzie was the third person arrested in Fall River that year for murder, and she was the only woman. Mm -hmm. So, again, this is a fairly rare crime to be happening. She was transported to the county jail in Taunton, where fortunately a childhood friend's mother, Mrs. Wright, would be her keeper. Her home for the foreseeable future would be a drab cell, nine and a half feet long by seven and a half feet wide, consisting of a bed, a chair, and a washbowl. She was permitted some small luxuries because of Mrs. Wright, yeah. mm -hmm. and she had a soft pillow, and some items to decorate her cell. She was able to receive dinners from the local hotel. How nice. Later, as she was going to trial on the indictment from the grand jury, Lizzie would receive more simple comforts like plants, candy, a male cat she named Daisy. What? What? Daisy? Yeah, I know this, but still, I, I can't. Well, I mean, she did have her father's. Her name, her name yeah. is. <laughs> but confinement does not suit Lizzie. My spirits are at an ebb tide. I see no ray of light amid the gloom. I try to fill up the waiting time as well as I can, but every day is longer and longer. My heart is heavy, and the burdens upon me seem greater than I can bear. I understand that. Yeah. I feel for her. Mm -hmm. Her arrest brought a protective circle of upper echelon to her aid, calling for her release praising her for her innocence. Her supporters included the Young Person Society of Christian Endeavor, one of the organizations she volunteered with, various chapters of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and the Massachusetts WCTU president, Susan Fessenden. Susan Fessenden began passing around a petition to gain signatures for Lizzie's release. Mary Ashton Rice Livermore, famed abolitionist and women's rights activist, went to bat for Lizzie and even visited her in jail. But the warrant was only for Andrew's murder, not Abby's. That's strange. Yeah, and I don't is. really go into too much detail about that. No, it was very strange. Some of the newspapers praised Lizzie for her calm and self-possession. The papers wondered at her coolness, describing her as wearing a mask of stoical indifference that fit her like a glove, That's as strange. everyone waited for that mask to slip. And this concludes part one of our review of The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Kara Robertson. Join us for part two as we delve further into the preliminary hearing in the trial. Was Lizzie an innocent daughter or an axe murderess? You'll hear more about the jury and the judges, the prosecution and defense teams, spectators and reporters, and even more about Lizzie. We'll even get to hear from our author, Kara Robertson. Tune in next week to find out. And if you want to get a head start on our next book, we'll be reading To Kill and Kill Again by John Costin. This is the story of a lesser-known serial killer in Montana named Wayne Nance. A deplorable human being, you'll be hooked as Costin leads us on a journey throughout Nance's life and career as a serial killer, with an ending that just might surprise you. So please, send us your thoughts, ideas, and opinions to Jill and Tara at MurderShelfBookClub.com. We definitely want to hear from you. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And subscribe to our feed on your favorite podcasting platform, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or Podbean. We don't want you to miss a thing. If you have time and you're able to, please leave us a five-star review. That would make us very happy. Every little thing helps us to grow. Until next time, murder bookies.
Happy reading.